Today continues the second part of our treatment on the second commandment, which is to make no graven images. Now, we talked about this in depth last week, and the principal reason that idolatry is prohibited is simply God's nature. He is transcendent. His majesty and His glory are such that they suffer no comparison. In other words, no comparisons can be made because there is nothing to compare to the divine nature. Neither the grandeur of creation, nor the nobility of human achievement, nor anything whatsoever can be set beside the divine and boast some likeness. He transcends it all. It is, remember, a quantitative difference rather than a qualitative difference. So God's difference from us is of quality rather than merely of quantity. God differs from his creation, not merely in order of magnitude, but more fundamentally of kind. Rather than being a superman, a more splendid and brilliant version of ourselves, he is something else altogether. As the theologians say, holy other. God is holy other, higher than our highest thought and deeper than our deepest insight. So God's true nature, eternal, unchangeable, infinite, has yet to enter into human understanding or perception. Truly, God is known better in terms of what he is not than what he is. Even our terms, eternal, unchangeable, infinite, they're all stated in the negative. He's not finite. He's not changeable. He's not temporal but he's these other things, yet we know not what they are. So if human thought desires to apprehend God, but if we truly want to know him as he is, it comes not through positive concepts and ideas, but the negation of them, the subtraction of them as the second commandment teaches, right? Make no images, not in heaven above, not on uh, the the oceans, the seas below, not on the earth either, nothing. Nothing. So it's a, it's a negation of all creaturely things. So only by stripping our imagination of human intuitions and impressions, divesting ourselves of anything temporal and earthly, can we rise up to him who is beyond all things. And yet, having withdrawn from all things, we still do not grasp the divine nature, but stand before it as an infinite mystery. Rather than understanding, comprehending the divine nature, I know what God is like, it's more of an experience. It's a brush with the transcendent unknown. Therefore, and this was our main point last week, the Creator commands that we honor Him as He is. Right? He, he's not an object within the universe. He transcends the universe. Therefore, we should worship Him as such. So, not making idols and images is the most basic tenet of our devotion to God. On the one hand, it safeguards us, um, it safeguards rather God's transcendence, and it keeps us from the folly of making him our possession, right? One deity among others who can be easily appropriated and bent to our agendas. But it reminds us also 
that God forbids any and all images of him, it reminds us that he's not to be trifled with. He is a jealous God, jealous for his glory, and he will not leave him unpunished who corrupts it. And from us, then, this requires a relentless scrutiny toward our thoughts about the divine, lest they fall into man-made creations and they become unreal figments of our imagination. But all that is merely one aspect of the second commandment, the negative aspect. Although it stirs my heart to talk about God's transcendence, the positive aspect of the second commandment leads us to explore the opposite of God's transcendence, which is his imminence, that is, his nearness and his closeness to his creation. In other words, we're barred from creating images and idols for two reasons. God's distance from us, he transcends us, so let's not make any idols, but then also his closeness to us, his nearness to us. And this morning, it's our intention to approach the second commandment through the frame of the divine imminence, his closeness. So our message will proceed in three parts. Creation first, then the incarnation, and finally, the ascension. So in the first part, we will examine humanity's creation in the divine image, and in the second part, we'll turn to the incarnation, the divine assuming the human image that he created, and lastly, we'll rise up to the ascension, the divine taking our human nature up to the highest heaven with him. And trust me, this all has to do with the second commandment. And so let's begin with reading the second commandment, and it's explicit in what it forbids. This is verses 4 and 5 of Exodus 20. The Lord says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. So of note, for us are two words. Idol, or if you have an older translation, that same word reads graven image. Um, So idol, graven image, and likeness. Now those two words ought to remind us of another passage, the creation account, where the same words feature prominently. God has recently brought the cosmos into being, and from it fashioned every form of human life, both spiritual and physical, except humanity. And when the narrative finally arrives at the creation of humanity, something strange happens, something that hasn't happened before. God deliberates. He deliberates. The passage reads, Genesis 1, 26, Then God said in his eternal counsels, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over everything that creeps on the earth. So God, in the second commandment, forbids the creation of images and likenesses. But here, 
in the creation account, he creates his own images and likenesses, human beings. These words, let us create man in, or create in our image and according to our likeness, can be said about no other creature, not the animals, nor the angels, nor even the mightiest spiritual powers. The human being alone is created in the image and according to the likeness of the Creator. So immediately, we encounter something unique about our nature, about us. A particular dignity that separates us as humans from all other creatures. Now here, the positive rationale for the commandment comes into view. right? The positive side of why we're not to have any images. Humans are not to make any images because, quite simply, they are the images of God already. Now, there's more to this, and I wish we had time to go into it. How the creation account depicts the earth as a divine temple where his glory rests, and the Garden of Eden as the Holy of Holies, the hot spot of the Lord's presence. Now, we don't have time to dwell into that, but it's clear. Both man and woman are placed upon the earth as an idol would be in a temple. Rather than being mute and dumb sculptures, they are living and breathing images of the Creator. And again, what purpose did such temple images serve in the ancient times? Well, they functioned as a mediator of the deity's presence, such that through the means of incantation and prayer, the image itself, the sculpture, became charged and suffused with the divine spirit. Now that, in a vastly superior way, is the role that humans, that's us, were intended to serve to the rest of the creation. God says, don't make any images. You don't need images because you are the images. You're the mediator of God's presence on earth. So the creator remains invisible and transcendent to his creation, but so that his presence would be known and that his will would be done, he placed his created counterpart to rule over his works. As the psalmist sings, as we've already read, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. The human race was instituted upon the earth to be the most visible manifestation of the Creator's glory and nature. It was created to be His image. All things, the psalmist says, have been put under our feet. All things to rule over them. Humanity thus is crowned with glory and majesty and somewhat shockingly said to be a little lower than God. Now there is good reason to understand that as a God lowercase rather than the creator and sustainer of all things, Nevertheless, humanity is endowed with an almost infinite dignity and worth, being in all the creation the only creatures made in the image 
and likeness of God. Now, in our day, it's almost impossible to declare humanity's true dignity without sounding new agey, right? Their overly sentimental slop about the divine spark and the God within has rendered any serious talk about human dignity almost unintelligible and pointless. Quickly, it devolves into a subjective and baseless affirmation of one's absolute importance. However, we cannot afford to throw out the scriptural baby with the new agey bathwater. Because truly, all our notions about human dignity and inherent value come from Christianity. Remember the Lord's words, Matthew 16, verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In exchange for one human soul, what might be a reasonable trade? What price can we put on the image of God in man? Christ says, not even the whole world, the entire earth, the sea, the lands, and all that dwells therein are not a worthy ransom to be paid for those made in the image. What value then, what regard, what esteem must we place upon man if the whole world is not of sufficient worth to be exchanged for him? Maybe the psalmist's words, you have made him a little lower than God, aren't so crazy after all. Now, such worth becomes, it's it's almost unbelievable. It it becomes clear in returning to the creation narrative. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. An impenetrable depth lies behind these words. The Lord breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. But any commentator worth their salt recognizes in these words something truly divine about humanity. All the animals were brought forth from the earth, as humanity was too. But none can be said to be animated by the divine breath. The very principle and basis of human life, which separates us from all other creatures, originates and is grounded in God, in the divine. He breathes his own life into humanity. And thus, as images of the divine nature, right, as God's image on earth, In the faces of our brothers and sisters, we are to intuit the divine presence. That in them something dwells that is inherently, might I say, godlike, greater in worth than the entire cosmos. Once again, the deeper, more profound rationale for the commandment emerges. We cannot talk about worshiping God properly 
about honoring Him and serving Him as He should be served without first and primarily attending to His image in our brothers and sisters. All right, the pagans were fools, serving and tending to the work of their own hands, statues, images, while passing by their fellow humans in scorn, not showing compassion, not showing love to them. But we, because the teaching of our Lord are wise, we cast down man-made images. We, we, we throw our idols to the dust, and instead, we serve and tend the living image, one another, our neighbors. Now, the Apostle John says something to the same effect. This is 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love God, or rather, for the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So, it's quite simple what John is saying. One cannot love the invisible God, feigning worship and piety toward him, without first loving his image in their brothers and sisters. He, he's the invisible God who created his image counterpart here on earth. That's us. And we can't, we can't say, I love God, I love the Creator, without saying, I love His image. The love of God begins with the love of His image. And the love of the image culminates in the love of God. What then does the second commandment summon us to do? What does it require of us? First and foremost, I believe, it calls us to recognize that every person, no matter their estate or lot, is resplendent with divine glory. It teaches us almost paradoxically that God is utterly different from his creation, and yet, in some sublime manner, that his presence is manifest in human beings. So it teaches us to recognize that, to see the, the God-given glory of every person, no matter what their estate is, what glorious or not glorious to recognize that. And secondly, recognizing humanity's splendor, the commandment calls us to acknowledge the absolute demand that each person places upon our conscience. That is, in their inherent worth and dignity, their irreducible dignity, every person respectable or reprobate, honorable or contemptible, contemptible, someone who contributes to society or someone who's a drain upon society, lays a claim to our respect and service and, indeed, our holy awe. Such is the only response to the grandeur of the human person, to the glory that God has bestowed upon us. So, Having understood what it means to be created in the image of God, at least partly, we move from our creation in the image to the incarnation. The creator, assuming the human nature that he created. So humanity, 
though it has been created in the image, has marred and stained that image through sin. It's not that humans ceased to be humans and lost their inherent glory and dignity, but that they corrupted it. So we see the image in one another and our neighbors. We see it presently, but only in a shattered and fragmentary way. We are damaged idols, resembling the likeness, but only fleetingly. At times, it seems not at all, consumed as we are in violence and hatred and perversion. If the image of God shines through us, it's not because of us, but in spite of us. Now, the apostle frames it as follows. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So humanity, appointed as the image, the mediator of the divine knowledge to the creation, in their rejection of God, became darkened. That is, the true understanding of the divine glory that was to be communicated through humanity, right, as those made in the image and likeness of God, became ignorance. It became darkness. It became foolishness. The truth was supposed to be published abroad through the image, but instead it was suppressed. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God, as revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So, as a result of the images becoming darkened, the truth, or rather exchanging the truth for a lie, the entire cosmos followed suit, itself becoming darkened. The true understanding and delight of the Creator had been thrust out of creation with our fall, the degradation of the image in us. Therefore, what happens? The images begin making images, turning the incorruptible God into the image of corruptible animals and beasts and four-footed creatures, as Paul goes on to say. So the images begin making images, and therefore God gave them over to the fate which they had chosen to fall deeper and deeper into ignorance, and therefore sin, and therefore damnation. But God, though he uh, committed humanity to the fate which they had chosen, did so only provisionally. He gave his image bearers up. He gave them over, rather, but he never gave them up. Into this darkened world he sent the light. John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word of God, who is none other other than the Son of God, and the radiance of God's glory became human. And in becoming human, he realized the purpose for what, for what humanity was created for. In other words, he became the true image. Christ became the mediator between the divine and the created. Whereas all humanity had fractured and marred 
the image of God in them through sin, suppressing the truth, Christ restored it in righteousness, becoming himself the image. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, says this, He is the image of the invisible God. So what do we have here? Humanity was created in the image of God. We blow it. God says, okay, I will be the image. The invisible God in Jesus of Nazareth becomes visible. Some argue that God broke the second commandment in the incarnation. Make no images, and then he becomes an image. But it's far better to understand his action as the fulfillment of the second commandment. Today, or really ever, images serve no abiding purpose because the image has come and imparted to us a true understanding of God. He who has seen me, says the man Jesus Christ, has seen the Father. So, what therefore does the second commandment require of us in light of Christ? Well, it fastens us to him as the image of the invisible God. Indeed, look for the divine glory in nature, in the awe and majesty that surrounds us. Look for it in philosophy and science, in the intricacies of design and the hidden metaphysical structures of the world. But chiefly and conclusively, the second commandment says, look for the divine glory in the man on the cross, There, on that God-forsaken hill, God is known. God is demonstrated. There is the image of God. And so as we spent time talking about last week, our intellect and spiritual powers cannot rise up to God to somehow pierce the veil between the divine and the created, between the temporal and the eternal. We can't do that. Therefore, God came down to us. The word of God stooped down to our lowest state, stripping off the effulgence of his glory that our weak eyes might behold him. The incarnation, you can say, is a work of translation. The divine nature is translated into the human. T.F. Torrance puts it this way. He says, The word assumes human form and approaches us within the actual forms of human life in the only way which we can understand. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He does not reveal himself to us, however, as he is in himself, in his total otherness and difference from us, but comes down to us to reveal himself within the conditions of our human and creaturely nature. So for our sake, the eternal assumed the temporal, the finite adopted or rather the infinite adopted the finite, and the transcendent took upon the ordinary, that we might know him, that we might have communion with him. It was possible no other way. He became the image. As the apostle says, 1 John, what was from the beginning, that is the source of all reality, he says, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked and touched with our hands, the creator, the invisible God, 
who transcends everything, he says, look, we can see him, we can touch him, we can, we can even behold him and hear his voice. The Alpha and the Omega has come down to us and revealed his glory within the conditions of human and creaturely nature. So, so here's the thing. Here's what the second commandment teaches us. It's utter foolishness to interpret the divine language, to try and rise up to it. Instead, the only word that we're to read is the incarnate word. That's where we know God. That's where we look. There's no need to look anywhere else. We don't need images. We don't need all of that because God became it. So let our words cease. Let all our image-making stop. All our endeavors and religions left behind like broken toys. And let us look to none but God and Christ and preach Him and Him alone crucified. So the second commandment points us to the image. You in the image of God, supposed to be this mediator of the divine presence. How glorious. But we've fallen from that. But Christ has restored us. He has become the image. Now, if I weren't so foolishly ambitious, I would stop there and elaborate on the implications that we've already brought up. Because truly, they are endless, right? There's so much that we can talk about there and, and use in our lives. But Alas, I am foolishly ambitious, so we're going to carry on. We've seen humanity's creation in the image, and almost unbelievably that that same image was assumed by the Creator. But there's more to the story, right? It doesn't stop there. The Word then takes our human nature back to the place from where He came. The Word takes our human nature back to the place from where He came. So crucial to understanding this last part of the sermon is that the incarnation of Christ, that in the incarnation of Christ, um, he takes up human nature and fulfills its purpose. And that ultimate purpose is made known in the ascension. So think of it this way. We were unable to be what we were supposed to be, right? And so Christ comes and He is that for us, right? He does what we're supposed to do. But the story doesn't stop with the crucifixion and resurrection, right? There's another part to the story. Christ ascends back into heaven. It's important to remember that, again, when Christ ascended to the right hand of God, he didn't leave his humanity behind. So he became human, and he will always be human. He took it with him into heaven. The Word is forever united with the human nature that he assumed in the incarnation. So he sits on the throne, not merely as divine, of course, that's given, but more startlingly as a human. God became human in Christ. He doesn't cease to be human. He takes our nature up with him. So we can formulate it this way. In the incarnation, we have the meeting of God and man in man's place. But in the ascension, we have the meeting of man and God in God's place. So God comes down to us, and God and man meet here on earth. But then Jesus goes back up into heaven, and God and man meet in heaven at the right hand of God. So he comes down to our humanity, yet not to leave it as he found it, but instead to raise it up to unfathomable heights 
literally to the very throne of God, his right hand. And again, here's what must be understood. The ascension of Christ represents not merely Christ's destiny, but also the destiny of those who believe upon him. We've been going through Revelation in the men's Bible study, and a key theme again and again through Revelation is that if you overcome, God's going to share his throne with you. He's going to give you part of his rule. There's Christ, and we participate in that same thing. Let me explain. This is Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. The Apostle Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image, there's that word, of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So in other words, the incarnate Son of God is the image, the full measure of humanity, which we've been predestined to be conformed to. Our destiny is not complete until we become human like Christ is human. He's the firstborn. He's the archetype. He's the last Adam into whose image God will transform us. Athanasius, I think the first theologian to really understand the implications of this, compares human nature to a portrait that's become blemished and stained. When that happens, the artist doesn't throw away the canvas, but has the model come back in and sit down again, and then the likeness is repainted on the same material, such that the image is restored. Now, in the same way, the Son of God came and dwelt in our midst in order that he might renew humanity made in his image and restore it to its original purpose. And the question is, what is the purpose? What is humanity's original purpose? Look no further than the ascension. Now, the beloved apostle, John, he puts it in even more explicit terms. First John 3.2 Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. So the true glory for which humanity was, is intended, the Apostle John says, has not yet appeared, or appeared not as yet. It surpasses our understanding at this point. It's a destiny too exalted to be fathomed just this second. Yet, we're not entirely ignorant. The one thing that we do know, he says, is that we will be like him. We will be like Christ as he sits currently at the right hand of God. So as Christ is the true human, so too we will be made into his image. We will be like him. Now, what does this mean for humanity? What does this mean for us? Well, I think very, very, very much. But first and foremost, it means that we should understand our creation in the image of God, not by looking back to some lost golden age, right? There it was. It was perfect. It was all ready. That, that's not quite the picture that the Scripture paints. Instead, we should understand it by looking forward, by looking ahead. If Christ is indeed the true human, the full stature to which humanity is called, then, in a very real sense, we're not totally human, at least not yet. A greater, richer, 
more fundamentally alive humanity awaits us. We are in the image at this point, but not in its full dignity and majesty. Glorification awaits us. Now, what will this glorification be? I suspect the answer I'm going to give is going to be quite shocking, so allow me to make my case before passing judgment. The ultimate human destiny can be summed up in the words of Athanasius. He says in his book on the Incarnation, God became man that man might become God. Quite shocking indeed, but I think he's merely taking the trajectory of Scripture to its logical conclusion. Have not the apostles said that we're predestined to be conformed to his image and that in some way we will be like Christ? What can that mean other than that, in some sense, humanity will be, again, deified? Now, there are many ways to understand this, some undoubtedly heretical, but again, the Scripture provides us clues. I didn't put the most important verse, excuse me. This is Second Peter Chapter 1, verse 4. Listen to what he says. For by these he has granted us um, his precious promises, precious and magnificent promises, so that by them, listen, you may become partakers of the divine nature. This is Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4. He says, God has granted his promises to us so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So the principal phrase there is that you may become partakers of the divine nature. It's an exceedingly bold statement that's caused a lot of controversy throughout the ages, but it's clear. God's intention for humanity is not simply to grant them a golden ticket to heaven, nor even permit them entrance into his kingdom, but more fundamentally, to raise them up to share in his own life to be partakers of the divine nature. Again, the term nature is something of a technical term. It doesn't simply mean that we share in God's moral and ethical likeness or his holiness. That's undoubtedly true. But it says that we'll share in his nature, that is, in his divinity. Think about how the Apostle Paul in Roman, or 1 Corinthians 15 talks about our resurrection. He says that this body will become glorious, it will become incorruptible, it will become eternal in some sense. Who's, who's truly immortal, incorruptible, and glorious? God is. And it says in some sense, we're going to share some of that other life. And so, there's another term we need to pay attention to, which is partakers, because it keeps us from understanding this in a heretical direction something like polytheism, many gods, or something similar to Mormon doctrine, right? Where you know, everybody has their own kind of planet, so on and so forth. God's nature is not given to us as a possession independent of him, but only by our participation in him. We are partakers of the divine nature. It is ours, in other words, only to the extent that we're in him. We do not become autonomous gods like God is God. That's impossible. But rather, here's the promise. We share and participate in his nature. It's right there in the logic of the incarnation and the ascension. Christ unites himself to humanity and brings it up with him. 
such that his destiny will be ours. Now, uh, we're going on, but bear with me. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. These are in accordance with the working of his strength, of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So here, Christ's ascension is depicted in physical terms, being raised up to the highest height. And his ascent leads him past all rule and power and authority and dominion. So again, this is truly astonishing. His human nature is exalted and made superior even to the most mighty and exalted spiritual powers. Far above them, it says. But the apostle continues just a little bit later on in chapter 2, verses 4 and 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Now listen, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, the same heavenly places to which Christ ascended are the same heavenly places that God has seated us. What does this mean? Quite simply, that we too will be made superior in nature to the spiritual powers and authorities. Our human nature is not changed, but it reaches its full potential in Christ. Doesn't the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians that we will judge angels? What does that mean? We're going to judge angels. Somehow we're going to share in God's throne. What does that mean? This is what it means. This is what it means to be created in the image of God. The Son assumes our humanity in its lowliness, and it raises the and he raises us up with him in glory. A church father, Ephraim the Syrian, he's more concise. He just says it this way. He gave us his divinity. We gave him humanity. And just so you can be sure that I'm not basing this on my own imagination or finding support from every crackpot in church history, let me read you a few quotes. These are the fathers of the Protestant tradition. John Calvin. Let us then mark, this is a commentary on the first, second Peter passage I read, that the end of the gospel is this, to render us eventually comfortable to God, and if we may so speak, to deify us. What about Martin Luther? He goes even further. He says, God pours out his dear son over us and pours himself into us and draws us into himself so that he becomes completely humanified and we become completely deified. So the true dignity and majesty of human beings is not a reality trapped in the past, but one that awaits us in the future. Human nature is created with an essentially godlike potential, the ability to be raised up to the very life of the Creator. Now, let me just end real quickly by giving some implications. And the first one is simply that, it, well, it reaffirms the one that we made, the dignity of every person. C.S. Lewis, his most famous sermon, some of you have read it, The Weight of Glory, he, he wraps it up saying this, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day become a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. 
all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with, this, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all our friendship, all our love, all our play, all our politics. So it is indeed a very serious matter, the way that we deal with one another, that we should approach one another with a holy awe. And truly, this reproaches us in our disgraceful disgraceful treatment of those in the image in your spouse, in your children, in your parents, in your friends, in your neighbors, even in your enemies, recognize the divine humanity within them and honor it accordingly and help them toward the right goal with your words and with your actions. And for some, this may be more needful at the moment. It's to recognize who you are, the value that God has placed on your life, a creature of incomprehensible worth. And then the last thing is just simply this. It points us back to Christ. Consider the unfathomable heights to which he has raised us. His unimaginably glorious work on our behalf. And like in the Gospel of Luke, that prostitute who came to Jesus, do the same, fall at his feet and wet them with your tears. The scripture says, it's not yet appeared what we will be, but the spirit says, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Maranatha, let's pray.